So part 24, so uh, this is the second to last class. So next week will be the last class, and then we'll be starting into something new. And so um, I will be continuing on to Genesis 12 to 50 next quarter, which essentially will be um, talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the covenants that God made with his people. Uh, so that's what I'll be doing next, but you'll, of course, have a choice about what you want to do. There'll be uh, a whole series of courses, so not next week, but the week after. Uh, so the second to last part. So uh, here we are in Black History Month, and so I wanted to um, at least get a chance to talk about some people in history um, that are, I think, worth uh, looking at their lives. So uh, Frederick Douglass is one such person. He was born February 1818. Um, he was an abolitionist, a preacher, uh, an orator, a writer, and a statesman. And he was born here in Maryland uh, on the eastern shore. So he was, uh, he was born on uh, a plantation as a slave in the eastern shore of Maryland. Um, he became a national leader in the abolitionist movement in Massachusetts and New York after he escaped from slavery. Um, he, he was famous for his oratory uh, and his writings as well. Uh, he was described by abolitionists in his time as a living counterexample to slaveholders' arguments that slaves lacked the intellectual capacity to function as independent American citizens. So abolitionists would just say, well, look at Frederick Douglass. Uh, that, that argument can't be right. Just look at Frederick Douglass. Uh, likewise, Northerners at the time found it hard to believe that such a great order had once been a slave. Uh, few Americans accomplished as much in their lifetime as Frederick Douglass. In his 77 years on earth, Douglass, who died February 20th, 1895, escaped sl slavery, won his freedom, published several newspapers, became a licensed preacher, advised presidents, and became one of the most well-known speakers of his time. So if you haven't read, so he wrote actually two different autobiographies, uh, both of which I read. I really, really recommend that you read Frederick Douglass's autobiography. Uh, the first one he wrote, he left out the details of how he escaped slavery because he wrote it while there was still slavery and he wanted to protect that route of escape for other slaves. So he left it deliberately vague how he got in his first autobiography. The second one, uh, Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, he, he described exactly how he escaped because it was after the Civil War and it was all done. Um, but... Strongly recommend, if you have not read Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, his autobiography, you got to do it. Do yourself a favor and read it. So um, I just want to do one more thing. I want to go through his conversion story. Uh, it's in his autobiography how he was converted to Christianity. Uh, he's, this is his words. I was not more than 13 years old when in my loneliness and destitution I longed for someone to whom I could go as to a father and protector. The preaching of a white Methodist minister named Hansen was the means of causing me to feel that in God I had such a friend. He, this is the Methodist minister Hansen, he thought that all men, great and small, bond and free, were sinners in the sight of God, that they were by nature rebels against his government, and that they must repent of their sins and be reconciled to God through Christ. I cannot say that I had a very distinct notion of what was required of me, but one thing I did know well. I was wretched and had no means of making myself otherwise. I consulted a good old colored man named Charles Lawson, and in tones of holy affection he told me to pray and to cast all my care upon God. This I sought to do, and though for weeks I was a poor, broken-hearted mourner, traveling through doubts and fears, I finally found my burden lightened, and my heart relieved. I loved all mankind, slaveholders not accepted, though I abhorred slavery more than ever. I saw the world in a new light, and my great concern was to have everybody converted. My desire to learn increased, and especially did I want a thorough acquaintance with the contents of the Bible. So that's from the autobiography of Frederick Douglass called The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. Now this is a true conversion story. You can tell, every word coming off the page, you can tell that this man knows what it means to be wretched in his sin and to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, 
And what, what is what is his? Uh, what's the and the result? The fruits are so obvious there. I loved all mankind, even slaveholders, because at this time he was still a slave when he was first converted. And his great concern was for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to have everybody cons- con- uh, converted. And he has this new love for God's word uh, to, to be acquainted with the scriptures. So uh, every word here is dripping of truth and the true story of somebody who's converted. And so this is a man worth knowing, Frederick Douglass. Uh, so uh, if you haven't read his, I can't stress this enough, if you haven't read the autobiography, The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, do yourself a favor, pick it up, read it. Remarkable man. Uh, remarkable man. Okay, so uh, what we will learn today. So today we're going to talk about, uh, we've, we've done this, we've gone through this a number of times now, but because uh, I wanted to establish this fact, biological fact, that all humans belong to one race. There are not separate races of human beings in a biological sense, in a physical sense. However, today we're going to talk about a spiritual fact that all humans are divided into two spiritual races. You're either in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. Uh, We're going to talk about the seven seas of history, so we'll go back to the foundation of history in the Bible. Uh, creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Christ's cross, and consummation. So that takes us from the beginning and creation to consummation, the second coming of Christ. Uh, the sweep of history, and the foundation of which is laid in Genesis 1-11. to um, And we're applying this to a particular problem in today's society. Uh, we'll talk about the seven R's of race, and so we'll talk about the fact that we are a created race, a fallen race, a rescued race, a scattered race, a, and, and then there's two spiritual races, a saved race and a lost race. But at the end, at the consummation, there's only going to be one race, and that's the Lamb's race. So that's what we're going to talk about today. First, we'll do a little bit of review about what we did last time. So uh, in part, so we're doing four parts of this uh, application of what we learned from Genesis 1-11 to to a particular problem today, uh, the problem of race. So uh, we talked last time about science and the fact that um, there is some real problems with a certain kind of science, um, but not that when we look at science and we see massive mistakes that it's made in the past, that doesn't mean we throw out all science. Uh, Operational science, for example, um, we talked about the fact that when you do um, observations in the present. All scientific observations, of course, are always done in the present. You can, unless you have a time machine, you can't go back in time. Uh, but operational science is applying it in, in uh, those present observations to uh, draw conclusions about the present and make computers and spaceships and things like that. Historical science is um, taking present observations, filtering them through your philosophical assumptions, and making guesses about the past. Um, and that is, that kind of science, historical or forensic science, is uh, subject to bias um, and leads to, and has led to many problems in the past. Okay. Uh, so we talked about this clash of worldviews and the fact that ideas have consequences. And so we showed one of the main consequences of this idea that, uh, that Darwin's idea that people are um, just evolved animals, uh, that that idea has consequences, um, that that was cut like a seed that was planted in people's minds and it grew and bore fruit. Um, and it it took root in the scientific community, and then it worked its way into other fields, and then finally into the laws of government. Um, and then, last of all, it, it actually filtered into the church and had a, a negative effect on people's faith. And so we took a look at, at the history of, of where this idea went, this idea that people are not created by God, not created in God's image, but are just evolved from animals. Um, And one of the places this led was eugenics, and it led to eugenics most particularly here in the United States in the early 1900s. It was centered in California, not one of the southern states or anything like that. It was centered in California here in the U.S., this idea that we needed to help evolution along. And so 
the idea was that for animals, we had nature red in tooth and claw, and the, and the weaker animals were weeded out. But with people, we were making this big mistake of helping the poor and downtrodden and the less than. And so therefore, they weren't dying off, and so the, the human population wasn't getting better in accordance with evolutionary theory like it should be. And so here comes along eugenics to try to correct that problem, to try to get rid of those who are undesirable and less than. Um, and they, there were several prongs to it. There were forced sterilizations. Uh, here in the United States, 60,000 U.S. citizens forced sterilization against their will. Uh, there were laws against interracial marriage in 27 states in the United States. Um, there were... Um, and there was the founding of Planned Parenthood in the beginning of the real uh, aggressive abortion industry was part of this, to get rid of the undesirable, uh, to help evolution along. And Hitler picked up on the theme um, that was really started here in America, and he really ran with it. Uh, he was going to help evolution along. He, he had decided what the, what the superior race was. It was his, of course. And the others had to go to help evolution along. So this is the idea. Uh, ideas have consequences, and we trace the consequences of this particular idea that people are evolved from lower animals. And in the animal kingdom, you had strict might makes right, the strong kill the weak, and then the, all the animals get better because of that. And we need to make sure that's happening in the, in the, in the world of humans as well. And so... Along comes Margaret Sanger. She founds Planned Parenthood. She also has what she calls the Negro Project uh, to try to um, try to push abort. All right. Uh, to continue with Margaret Sanger, uh, she also uh, took great pride in speaking before the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, uh, seeing this is she wrote this in her autobiography. This is a quote from her autobiography uh, about talking to the Ku Klux Klan and about how. Uh, she saw that as a major opportunity to further her ideas and, and her work. And so the ideas have consequences. Um, and we talked about the Margaret Sanger Award being Planned Parenthood's uh, highest award for achievement. Um, and then this example, I think, is the, is the worst of all. I, in, in 20th century America, in New York City, in the Bronx Zoo, uh, up till 1916, we had a man in the zoo, in a cage, in the monkey exhibit. Uh, his name was Otabenga. He was uh, kidnapped from his home in Africa, brought over against his will to the U.S., and, and put in a cage in the zoo. Um, and this was in accordance with the science. So this was the science that was taught, uh, taught to kids in schools uh, here in, in the United States, and it was an outworking of the idea of evolutionary biology, that, that there was uh, people were evolved just like animals were evolved, and in the animal kingdom we see uh, different rates of evolution within different uh, branches of different animals, and so there's, there's no reason to believe within evolutionary theory that we shouldn't have different groups of people evolving different amounts, um, and so, therefore, we put a, a man in a cage, uh, in a zoo, in a zoo display in New York City in the 20th century. Um, just the terrible consequences of a bad idea. Um, so, yes, go ahead. Can you please remind me of why they have not given that award since 2015? Yeah, and they haven't given any reason. Uh, so I looked at their website, and, and I actually cut and paste that uh, from their website. Uh, this, that, that uh, text there is cut and paste from the current Planned Parenthood website, as it is right now. Um, but they haven't given it since 2015. Um, and there has been some controversy, like uh, the Planned Parenthood of New York State has said that they, they don't want to have anything to do with Margaret Sanger. They, they can read this history, too, and say, do we really want to be associated with this lady? And so there is starting to be some controversy within Planned Parenthood about where they came from uh, because it, it, she, was a, she was an awful human being. Um, 
But the, the Planned Parenthood Federation of America website still lists this Margaret Sanger and still has these words there about the Margaret Sanger Award, even though I haven't given it since 2015. So 1916, he killed himself. He, he got a gun and he shot himself in the chest. Um, and that put an end to the, 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 uh, the having a man in the zoo there. But that was up till 1916. So, uh, so my grandmother, I think I told you this story, she was born in 1915. And she died in 2019 at 104. Um, and so I used to give this talk when she was still alive. And I used to say, and in my grandmother who's still alive, in her lifetime this happened. Because this was, she was born in 1915. This was 1916 when he died. And so within the lifetime of a living person in my family, we had a person in the zoo. Because of this bad idea. Yeah. <clears throat> so good question. So there were some churches that spoke out. In, fa in fact, there have been churches that spoke out against slavery going back to the 1600s. Mm -hmm. um, now, there were other churches, <laughs> there were other churches that twisted scripture to justify slavery from scripture. Um, but it, quite a bit of that was really awful biblical illiteracy. Uh, including this idea of the curse of Ham that we went over uh, three or four classes ago. Uh, there is no curse of Ham in the Bible. It's a curse of, on Canaan. It has nothing to do with skin color. We know from the Egyptian frescoes. But people twisted scripture to justify themselves. And so when people sin, when we sin, we just try to justify ourselves. And we look around for any way that we can justify ourselves. And so people that were involved in slavery, even in the church, tried to justify themselves. And so, yes, there is a, a shameful history in uh, churches of justifying slavery. Uh, but there is also a robust history of churches opposing slavery, uh, both here in the U.S. and in England, um, England even more than here. They opposed slavery earlier. Um, they never had, you know, a big slave, um, uh, a big population of of, uh, of slaves in England. Um, but they opposed it earlier. But there was churches that opposed it, um, going all the way back to the 1600s here in the U.S. Yeah. So when um, Darwin was coming out of his theories, the church back then must have opposed, like. Because it took, what, 50 years before his teaching really took? So, uh, no, it, they actually took a lot faster than that. Um, in his lifetime, it, by the 1880s, it was, it was very strongly believed throughout the scientific community. Um, so, yes, it took very quickly. His ideas took quickly. It, wasn't, it didn't take a short amount of time. It was a, a very, it was, and, and as uh, Pastor Allen pointed out last time, it was a perfect cover for rebellion against God. And so, you know, before Darwin, um, of course there were people who rebelled against God, but, um, but now with Darwin, there's an explanation for where we came from apart from God and apart from his word. And so people that wanted to, were already in rebellion against God latched onto it, and it became very popular very quick as a justification for not having to deal with a creator to whom I was responsible. So if there's no creator and I'm not responsible to that creator, well, then I can do whatever I want. Um, and so that was very pop a very popular idea. No creator who, therefore, nobody to be responsible to. Uh, so it spread really quickly. Okay. Uh, yes. Uh, there's a video... And I've got the, the YouTube link is on there, and you can get this. You can download this from Hope Book, uh, this lesson with, with this website in there. And there's, a, um, there's a, a documentary. It's a link to a documentary. It's about 30 minutes long. It's called Human Zoos. And there's a lot of information, and it points to a lot of other information in that documentary. So I would start with that documentary called Human Zoos. Uh, if you want to learn more about it, um, but yes, this is a tragic thing, and this is um, this is a, 
the proof that ideas have consequences and, and bad ideas have bad consequences. And so it's not just, so um, I, I sometimes have people say, well, why do you care so much about this creation evolution thing? Is, isn't it kind of a secondary uh, issue? It doesn't really uh, have to do with salvation, but, and that would, it would be okay if, if evolution was just a bad idea and it, and it didn't, didn't have such awful consequences, then maybe you wouldn't have to spend so much time or maybe it wouldn't be worth um, uh, um, showing or, or, or spending so much time on this one false idea, because there's so many false ideas out there. But the reason that I, I spent so much time uh, trying to um, show, uh, to talk about this bad idea is because it has such bad consequences. This is a particular bad idea that has particularly awful, awful consequences that we can see in history. Um, so, And people are trying to hang on to the idea and try to distance themselves from these consequences. But that's... Um, the, the idea will continue to have bad consequences, no matter how much we suppress one particular... So people will say, well, no, we would never do this now. And, and that's probably true. We're not going to put a guy in the zoo now. Um, but that's where this led in the past, and, it, and the idea is still the same. That same idea is still there, and it's still celebrated, it's still... Um, it's still taught in schools to every one of our kids if, you, if they go to a public school. Um, and so that, that it can't fail to have other bad consequences as well. Uh, yes, Doug? Uh, yeah, yeah. People uh, will use excuses to take bad ideas and run with them to places that are uh, convenient to them. That, that's true. That is true. Um, okay. Uh, so... Uh, we, we talked about the fact that only eight people came off the ark. Well, why do we have such a diversity of human beings then? Um, and we talked about the fact that this idea, this secular idea of race, is um, it's contrary in many ways to uh, biblical teaching, and it also doesn't make sense in a factual matter. So uh, I showed you this one family, uh, Kylie and Remy, these two girls. These are twins. Uh, those two girls are twins, not just sisters, but twins. <laughs> And so are you going to tell me that, you know, one of them is a different race than the other within the same family? That makes no sense at all. Um, you know, much less that, you know, this one's an evil oppressor and this one's a, uh, you know, a, a, a victim somehow. Uh, no, they're sister, twin sisters in the same family. This idea, the modern secular idea of race is... Um, um, is nonsense when you look at actual human beings and actual families. That's uh, uh, this is the two girls when they're a little bit uh, a little bit older. Okay, uh, and we we talked about how this works with biology. That uh, there are at least three melanin-producing genes in the human genome, and if both the mother and father are heterozygous for the three, they're they're not one's not dominant over the other. Um, then you can get a, a great difference within the same family. The same two parents can have kids with a very dark brown skin or very light brown skin. Um, and, and, of course, we see that in reality in one family. Um, everybody's brown. Some are darker brown than some are lighter brown. And, in fact, and this is a picture from... Um, uh, students at the Washington International Primary School in Washington, D.C. on 36th Street. And as you can see, the, uh, the amount of melanin, the, 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 the lighter brown to darker brown in human beings is continuous. There's no break. There's no line you can draw there and say, uh, everybody to the right is black and everybody to the left is white. No, they're all brown and they're all shades of brown. And it's absolutely continuous in human beings. There's, there's no break there um, in how much melanin we have. Uh, so it makes no sense to push people into an artificial category based on skin tone. Um, it's, it makes no biological sense. It makes no practical sense. Um, it only makes sense from a political standpoint. If you have something, uh, if you want to make some kind of a political point, it's the only reason it's, it's done at all. Uh, 
Uh, so the, the issue is, the central issue that we talked about last time is, is God's word truth or does man get to decide what's true? Um, so uh, we talked about, we're going to talk more about this today, Acts 17, from one blood he made every nation of man. And so where, so where did all these different people groups come from? Well, they came from uh, the Tower of Babel. We had uh, God divided the languages. Uh, we have about 7,000 languages, but they're grouped into groups. Uh, we can li- li- people that are linguistic experts can trace back to language families. The seven thousand languages can be grouped into much smaller families, but they can't go back to one. They can only go back to some number of language groups that then don't are not similar to each other in any way. And where did that come from? Well, that came from all these descendants that we learn about in Genesis chapter ten of Noah's three sons. We had all these different family groups. By the time of Pelig, by the time we'd gone down four or five generations from Noah, we had something like 78 or so um, groups of people uh, based on the genealogies we get in Genesis chapter 10, and these would have been spread out from the Tower of Babel. Uh, how did they travel? We talked about the land bridges because of the Ice Age that made it possible to travel even to Australia, for example, on land. And so the biblical view is you had Adam and Eve, they had sons and daughters, you had Noah and his sons who survived the flood. Um, They had started to, um, the population had started to go up, but they clumped together at Babel. God spread them out by confusing their languages, and so you get different people groups. So that was what we talked to up to now. Um, So in part three, we're going to go forward and talk about this idea that that there's one physical race, biological race, but we have two spiritual races. So, um, as a background, here's, uh, here's the large picture of what we're trying to do here in the whole class is we've got Genesis 1-11 to as the foundation for a biblical worldview. To see the world from the view of the Bible, we have to make sure that we understand Genesis 1-11 to because that provides the foundation. So first, the God of the Bible created the world and everything in it including men and women. We get that in Genesis 1 and 2. As creator, he has absolute sovereign authority over all his creation, including men and women, Psalm 24. People are created in God's image, unlike everything else in creation, which is not created in his image. We get that in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And as image bearers of the almighty creator of the universe, men and women all have infinite value. People are valuable. People should be treated with dignity and respect. Why? Because they're image bearers of the almighty creator of the universe. People are created, in in addition to that, there's a reason or a purpose for which we are created, and that's to have a relationship with our creator. That's why God made us in his image, so we could have relationship with him. And so the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, has a series of questions and answers. The first one, the very first one, is what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So um, that was the creation in God's image, but then something else happens. Adam's fall brings sin and death into the world, and all Adam's descendants are born with a sin nature and therefore slaves to sin, as Romans chapter 6 puts it. Every man and woman needs salvation, therefore, uh, provided by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in accordance with scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Uh, That's the primary need of every man and woman. Everyone alive today and all people who ever walked the earth are descended from Adam and Eve, and therefore we are all relatives of one family and the members of one race. Genesis 4-11 and Acts chapter 17 so that's the foundation, the background. Now, we, we take that foundation and that background and we apply it to one particular, we have been for these last couple of weeks, applying it to one particular problem in our modern American world. Racism, which is a particular manifestation of the sin of partiality and is therefore an act of rebellion against God, our creator. Um, and James chapter 2 goes through the sin of partiality, James chapter 2, 1 through 13. And the end of that passage of Scripture is, is uh, frightful 
James 1.13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the end of the passage about this sin of partiality. Um, it's a very harsh end to that passage. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, um, so the solution to the problem of the sin of partiality, which manifests itself as racism in our modern world, uh, the solution is repentance, followed by obedience to God, something only possible in Christ, First uh, John chapter 5. So if we want to solve the problem of racism, so we see a problem, we look around our world and we see people are treating each other in a way that they shouldn't be treating each other, This, uh, based on uh, these uh, biological factors or, or uh, this superficial uh, external appearance, um, and, and it's not right, and we want to solve that problem. So how do we solve that problem? What does the Bible say is the solution to that problem? Well, the solution to that problem is to go about God's assigned work to make disciples. There is unity in Christ, and only in Christ. So uh, Matthew 28 says we're supposed to be make disciples. Uh, Galatians 3 says there is unity in the body of Christ. So we have a solution. We have an answer to this problem. It's not the answer that anybody in the secular world wants to hear. They want a different answer. But the different answers won't work. This is the answer that will work. Um, and so, and and this is the answer that has worked over and over again in history with all kinds of problems. Um, the uh, the, Christ, the early Christian church, for example, conquered the Roman Empire one convert and one martyr at a time. They didn't uh, they didn't win any elections. They didn't get any laws passed. Um, they they made one disciple after one disciple after one disciple after one disciple. And before you knew it, the Roman Empire was a Christian empire. Um, that's how they did it. They didn't do it by marching. They didn't do it by changing laws. They didn't do it by instituting government programs. They did it by the Great Commission, one convert at a time. And that will solve any problem that we have in our society. If we have a problem that in our society, then somewhere at the root of it is a sin problem. It's not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. And the solution to a sin problem is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have that solution. We have a reason for the hope that is in us, uh, and we need to share it. That's the solution. So, all right, so let's go back. Let's, t- let's go take a step back. That's the 35,000 foot view. Uh, we've, we've established this, I hope, over the last several classes, that it's a biological fact that all humans belong to one race. Adam's race, the human race, uh, Acts 17:26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, uh, Acts chapter 17. And so if we go back to the broad sweep of history, I borrowed this from Answers in Genesis, they have their seven seas of, of history, uh, creation, self-explanatory, corruption is the fall, catastrophe is the flood, confusion is the Tower of Babel, Christ is uh, the incarnation of the God-man, Jesus Christ, uh, the cross is Jesus' uh, substitutionary atonement and death on the cross, and the consummation is his second coming, and the new heavens and the new earth. That's the broad sweep of all of history, the seven seas of history. So, uh, if we go through those, uh, of course, the, uh, the first five of them, the first four of them, are all in Genesis 1 to 11. So Genesis 1 to 11 lays the foundation for all of this. And so we've talked about this. We'll go back through it really quickly. And then I want to get to uh, the, the, the races, how this applies to race. So uh, creation. So we saw creation in Genesis chapter 1. And so this is God in the Trinity saying, let us make in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea. and over the." So there's a purpose. Right away there's a purpose uh, to have dominion over the rest of creation under God's authority. Uh, God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So first of all, we're a created race. So biologically, physically, we are a created race, not one that evolved up from animals. Uh, we're a created race. 
but then there was the corruption. So first of all, God created everything very good. Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall, corruption. The creation is corrupted. It's corrupted by Adam and Eve and sin. When woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eye, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And so this is a corruption of the creation. The one that was given dominion over the rest of creation, created for that purpose in the image of God, corrupted himself and the rest of creation, as we see from uh, the curses that are put on not just Adam and Eve, but the, all of creation because of this sin. So we are a fallen race. The whole human race, the biological created race, is fallen. Uh, Romans 5, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we're sinners because we sin, and we sin because we're sinners. Uh, Romans chapter 5. And then we study the next thing, next major event we come into Genesis 1 to 11 is catastrophe, the flood. Uh, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky. That's Genesis chapter 6. And then in Genesis chapter 7, he actually does it. He floods the earth and, and kills everything. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark, Genesis 7:23. So there is a catastrophe. Uh, but we are a rescued race, so God rescued a remnant. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 3, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So we're a rescued race as well. Um, and then confusion, the Tower of Babel. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And so we're a scattered race. So God scattered us. Uh, we're created, uh, we're fallen, we're rescued, and we're scattered. This is the history that Genesis 1-11 to teaches about who we are as human beings. Uh, so the biblical view, Adam and Eve created in the image of God. They had sons and daughters. And then everybody except Noah and his sons were killed, and so those eight people, Noah and his sons and his daughters-in-law, came off the ark uh, they started to repopulate, but they clumped together. God spread them out at the Tower of Babel, and there we ha therefore we have different people groups and cultures around the world. <clears throat> so this is the biological fact of who we are as people. But there's also a spiritual fact, and that spiritual fact is that the people are divided into two spiritual races. So this, um, this graphic illustrates that with... Uh, uh, kind of a, a light background over here, and a dark background over there. But notice that within each one of those spiritual kingdoms is people with all kinds of different uh, skin shades and eye colors and hair colors and all that sort of thing. That that's not what separates people into the kingdom of light and dark. Uh, it's the direction in which you're racing. Uh, are you racing towards the kingdom of darkness or are you racing towards the kingdom of light. Uh, so there is a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light which people are divided into. Um, and there's no third kingdom. Um, and so we come to Christ, <coughs> his incarnation. And so the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, it, it specifically says that this is a, a spiritual race. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. For you once were not a people. So this is people from all over the place, but now they're a people. Uh, But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 1 Peter chapter 2. So then we get to the cross. And so the culmination of history here that's been building up all this time is to the cross of Christ. And Christ's sacrifice on the cross for the sins of the world. So then, as, and so this is continue, Romans 5 was that everybody's uh, dead in their sins through Adam. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, Christ on the cross, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as the, through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Romans five eighteen and 19. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, uh, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So there's two spiritual races. Those who are dead in Adam, those who are alive in Christ. Two spiritual races that the Bible describes all the way through. One biological race, two spiritual races races that's the teaching of the bible and so there's a saved race and so this is in the spiritual realm so we've been talking about races in the biological realm in the spiritual realm there's two and the first one is the saved race for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of god not as a result of works, so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works we are a saved race, those who are in Christ. So that's one spiritual race. What about the other one? What about the other spiritual race? <clears throat> so let's take a look at that. What does the Bible say about that? Well, <clears throat> Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 said this, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And so Jesus taught this concept. He taught it in illustrations, that there are two spiritual races, and he gave this, uh, this word picture of a narrow gate and a wide gate. Narrow gate, one spiritual race. Wide gate, another spiritual race. <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus teaching about his second coming. He said, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will gather before him, and he will separate them one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. And then in verse 41, Jesus says, Then he will also say to those on his left... Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Very harsh words from Jesus about the separation of the two spiritual races and what happens to those from the kingdom of darkness. Into the eternal fire. So there is also a lost race. Spiritually, there's a saved race and there's a lost race. Uh, then death, and so in Revelation chapter 20, there's a description of this. Jesus was just talking about it. Jesus was talking about what it was going to be like, and then further on in Revelation, there's a description of it. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is the same thing Jesus is talking about, that there are two spiritual races. There's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, and those who are in the kingdom of darkness it will experience the second death. So they'll die physically, but they're also going to be tossed into the lake of fire, uh, which is where death and Hades were thrown, where the, uh, Satan and his angels are thrown, um, that anyone whose name is not written, written in the book of life, so those who are not in Christ, 
not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, thrown into the lake of fire, the lost race. <clears throat> and then we come to the end of history and the consummation. So, second coming of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth, described in the book of Revelation. So, the consummation of all history. So, Revelation chapter 7 describes what it's going to look like. I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so this is people from every tribe and language and nation and people. And so these are the people of the kingdom of, of light, the, the people that are saved in Christ. And it's obviously this has nothing to do with your biological characteristics. Because people from every tongue and every people group are in this group uh, that are saved. <clears throat> Further on in Revelation 21, it says, and, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. So um, all that is done away with. So all those were uh, results of sin. So sin brought with it not only death, but also uh, it brought with it pain and suffering and guilt and shame. And all those things are a result of sin. And in the new heavens and the new earth, it will be completely um, completely saved from the presence of sin and any of the results of sin. And that's what uh, Revelation 20, uh, verse 4 is talking about. Uh, no presence of sin, so no results of the curse. There's no more curse in the, in the consummation. So, in that sense, at the very end, in the consummation, we're back to only one spiritual race. Uh, so in heaven, in the new heavens, in the new earth, there's only the Lamb's race. Uh, only one spiritual race. There will no longer be any curse. This is Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor of the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And so that's the consummation of history, and there's only the people of God. Um, those with his name on their foreheads. Uh, the Lamb's race at the end. Alright, so that's the story of history. One biological race. Right now we have two spiritual races. King of darkness, kingdom of light. And oh, by the way, every one of us started out in the kingdom of darkness. And we're moved into the kingdom of light uh, by salvation through the grace of God, uh, by faith in Jesus Christ. Moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Regenerated by the Holy Spirit from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. Every single person that's in the church uh, has been moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And... We've been told, we've been commanded uh, by our Lord to make disciples. And so what does that mean? That means that we're supposed to be reaching out to people that are in the kingdom of darkness like we were before and explaining to them how they can move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Make disciples. Um, that's what the Bible tells us we're supposed to do. We're, we're saved for good works, not by good works, for good works. Um, and so when we look at a human being, another human being, we should see, based on what we learned from Genesis 1 to 11, that person is created in the image of God, therefore infinitely valuable. However, that person is fallen, uh, is, is cursed by sin, uh, has a sin nature. Uh, is spiritually dead, is part of the kingdom of darkness. So we see both of those facets of their existence when we look through the lens of the Bible, especially Genesis 1-11. to We see a person of infinite value made in the image of God. We see a person who is dead in his trespasses, a person that is spiritually dead. Um, and we have, therefore, we have compassion on that person. We see that person is uh, as worth, worthy of dignity and respect, and 
oh, by the way, especially worthy of hearing the gospel. Um, and so let's apply. Uh, let's do some application uh, to what we learned from this. Uh, so, first of all, we need to look at a person in a certain way. We need to look past genetics. Uh, we need to look past the fact that a person has a certain hair color or, or skin shade or hair amount or eye shape or height or weight or whatever. And look at the person in spiritual terms. So look at the person's mind, needs, heart, cares, hurts, spiritual condition, especially. So remember, First, first Samuel chapter 16, when uh, the Lord tells Samuel to go anoint uh, a new king. Um, and he goes and sees the sons of this man, Jesse. And they're all lined up there. Um, and Samuel sees the older son who, who's big and looks great. And, uh, but the Lord says to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so eventually he gets down to David and, and anoints David as the next king, the small one, the youngest son. Um, but the point is, God looks at the heart, and we should too. Um, we should be looking through, especially for the spiritual condition of the person. What is the, what is the greatest need of every single person? The greatest need is salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, no matter what condition they're in. So there's nothing wrong with giving a hungry person food. But if that's all you've done, have you addressed his most fundamental need? No, you have not. You, you have done a good thing by giving a hungry person food. But if you stop there, you have not addressed his spiritual condition. Um, and therefore, you haven't done all that you should do for that person. Okay. So uh, seeing, seeing people through a biblical worldview. So well, what does that mean? So if I want to look at a person and see them through a biblical worldview, first of all, I have to realize that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that person has a sin problem. Whatever other problems he has, his personal sin, his own sin that separates him from, from God, is the worst problem he has. He, he doesn't know it, and he would deny it if you told him. But that's the worst problem he has. Because the wages of sin is death. However, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, um, notice, wages are something we earn. So what have we earned? We've earned death. So we've earned, every single person has earned their one-way ticket to hell. But the free gift of God, not something we earn, but a free gift, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, um, Let's turn to a passage, Second uh, Corinthians chapter five. If you have a Bible, please open your Bible and look at Second Corinthians chapter five, because this is an important passage about the attitude that we should have based on our biblical worldview, based on the fact that we see, have read, and understood Genesis one to eleven. So we we have a a proper view of who people are, um, and so and then we come to this passage, Second Corinthians chapter five, uh, an important passage that I want to go through with you. So. Starting in verse 17, I'll give you a second to get there. So verse 17, <clears throat> therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So a person has passed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light because they're in Christ. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what is this ministry of reconciliation? Uh, we don't have to worry. We don't have to wonder. It's not a mystery. It's explained right here in the text. Very clearly, there's no ambiguity. What is the ministry of reconciliation? It's that we are ambassadors for Christ. The passage explains what it means. 
that we're ambassadors for Christ. Uh, well, what does that mean? That means it's as though God were making an appeal through us. That's what an ambassador does. An ambassador represents his government, his king, his president, whatever. And so we're representing God. And who are we representing him to? We're representing him to the unsaved. So we're ambassador from Christ to those who are still in the kingdom of darkness. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And now we're going from the kingdom of light as ambassadors to those who are still trapped in the kingdom of darkness. And we're making an appeal. And it's as though God is making the appeal through us. And what is that appeal? That appeal is to beg people that are stuck in the kingdom of darkness. Beg them on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's what this passage says. So what is the ministry of reconciliation? It's us that are in the kingdom of light as ambassadors begging those who are still in the kingdom of darkness to be reconciled to God. So that's what the ministry of reconciliation is, trying to get people to be reconciled to God. Now, in 21st century America, within the church, unfortunately, you will see, if you pay attention, people in the church twisting this passage to make it about some secular effort at racial reconciliation. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is about spiritual reconciliation, those who are in the kingdom of darkness, those who are in the kingdom of light, going to those who are in the kingdom of darkness and begging them on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's what you really need. You need to be reconciled to God. That's what this passage is about. Um, I guarantee you, if you open your eyes and you Google, you will see somebody in a church today twisting this passage to mean something else, to have a, a, a secular uh, expression. Don't fall for it. Do not fall for it. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is way more important than that. This work is way more important than that. Um, it's, it's way more important to, re- to get somebody to be reconciled to God than anything else that we do. Okay, Ministry of Reconciliation. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. So where they're heading is they're, they're, they're fo- focused on the things of man rather than the things of God. They're focused on, um, in, in fact, I've seen this passage used to justify reparation payments from one group of people to another group of people. They'll say, the ministry of reconciliation means we have to, we have to pay money to, uh, to, from one group of people to another group of people. That's what the, no, no, that's, that's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about saving souls. It's not talking about paying money from one group of people. It's not talking about filthy lucre. Um, no, uh, this is a, a deep spiritual passage, very important about the work of the people of God to try to, uh, to, to be involved in God's process. So does God need us? To save anybody? No, he doesn't need us. Uh, but it's a great privilege that God has allowed us to be part of this process. Um, and not only allowed us, but commanded us to be part of this process. So we're supposed to be about this ministry of reconciliation. And this ministry of reconciliation is reaching out to people that are in the kingdom of darkness and begging them, begging them, on, this is the word, beg, beg them on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Not to pay somebody money, that's, that's not, not right. And it's, it's very sad to me that people are using this passage to justify some sort of a, uh, a secular position. Yes, go ahead. <clears throat> uh, that was a really great point, and uh, I had very similar questions. But just to clarify or, or kind of conclude what you're saying, it's not a reconciliation between man and man. It's Correct. It's a reconciliation between man and God. Yes, exactly right. In that sense, what you're saying. Right, exactly right. Uh, Now, the Bible has other passages about reconciliation between man and man within the body of Christ. The fact that this is, we are are one in Christ Jesus. There's unity in the church. So, the the end result after, after somebody is reconciled to God, then they are reconciled to others within the body of Christ. 
But that's not what this is talking about, not this passage. All right. Um, and so the last thing I want to talk about is unity of the Spirit in the body of Christ. So this is the next step. Um, so if you'll, if you'll um, change, uh, uh, turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. So Jesus, Ephesians chapter 4 is talking about the unity in the church, the unity of the Spirit in the church. Um, and so if you want to have unity, well, bring people into reconciliation with God first, and then you get this as a byproduct. This is a res- one of the results of reconciliation with God is unity with other human beings within the body of Christ. Um, and so <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4, if you'll turn there. Therefore I, prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to persevere, uh, preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, (coughs) by the craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And so, <clears throat> note the unity and diversity in the body of Christ. So there's unity and diversity. So there's unity in Christ, but there's also this diversity of spiritual gifts that's a key part of the description of the body of Christ. We're not all gifted the same. Everybody's given some gift. And what's the purpose of those gifts? The purpose of those gifts Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So what, is, what, is, what were you given a spiritual gift for? You were given a spiritual gift in order to build up others, to build up the whole body of Christ for service. Um, that's, what it's, that's why we have a diversity of spiritual gifts. So if we notice this passage, uh, this passage, Ephesians chapter 4, this great passage about unity. So first, Paul makes a general appeal for unity in verses 1 to 3. Then he describes the nature of that unity in verses 4 to 6. He describes the diversity in that unity uh, and the means by which God preserves it in verse 7 and then 11 and 12. And then he describes the unity perfected in 13 to 16. Now, uh, but the key to the whole exposition of of Ephesians 4 is the word therefore in verse 1. So when you see the word therefore, uh, what is it there for? It's there to point you back to what he's just been talking about. So in Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul goes through all the doctrine. And then 4, he says, because of all this doctrine, therefore you have unity. Uh, So it's key to look at, when you see therefore, go back and see what's pointing back to. It points back to the first three chapters, emphasizes that the theme of unity is something which follows as a consequence of what's gone before. The doctrine expounded in in, uh, chapters 1 to 3 is the basis and the background for everything Paul has to say about unity. Uh, For example, Ephesians 2, 13 to 16, Paul reminds the Ephesian Christians, they are people who have realized that all their own good works, all their good living, all their activities, their nationality, their religion, everything they had before is entirely useless. And they are made to be in Christ, and Christians brought into this unity, which is in the church, entirely by the action of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in particular by the shedding of his blood upon the cross, which is an action completed in the past. Christ died on the cross, a historical fact, something that happened in the past. That's the basis of unity. 
so we must get rid of the notion that the Ephesians are being exhorted to produce or to arrive at something. Now, all that I just said, the last three slides, were a quote from a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones, The Basis of Christian Unity, um, which is an, essentially an exposition of, of Ephesians chapter 1 through 4. So, and so this is uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' words. We must get rid entirely of the notion that the Ephesians are being exhorted to produce or to arrive at something. It's not a work of human beings to produce unity. Unity is produced by the finished work of Christ on the cross. So if we think that, that unity is up to us, first of all, we're going to fail. Uh, second of all, the unity has already been produced by Christ. Um, and, and it's not something that we can or should be trying to do. Okay. Um, I was going to do one more passage, but we don't have time. So we'll have to do this. We'll have to do Galatians chapter 3 uh, next time. Uh, so let me end then on Ephesians chapter 4. We'll go into Galatians chapter 3 next time. We have one more uh, session to talk about the application of how uh, a biblical worldview with a foundation in Genesis 1 to 11 leads us to see people in a different way or should lead us to see people in a different way um, such that we see people as creating the image of God and therefore infinitely valuable but also fallen and dead in their transgressions in the kingdom of darkness and needing of rescue by Christ Jesus for whom we are ambassadors begging them to be reconciled to God. Uh, Let's close in prayer.